0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. Now, one of the things that we like to do on our show is to help you guys all become historians. It's not just us talking about unexpected subjects. We also want to give you guys the tools to do it yourself, to start thinking like historians. And today, we're going to be talking about how to choose a historical subject.
1: Yes, this is episode five of How to Be a Historian, our little mini-series that comes under the umbrella of histories of the unexpected. And we are aiming this at simply everyone. We are aiming it at people who are just interested in history and want to be a bit more knowledgeable about something. How do you go about picking a topic and then researching it? But we're also gearing it to people at at school and, and university. So lots of sixth formers involved in doing their independent or open study wondering about how on earth do you pick a topic that you've got to write about? And third-year historians at university uh, who have to write a 12,000-word dissertation on a particular topic, how do you go about it?
0: Yeah, because I I think one of the things we do with History is Unexpected is explain that everything has a history, which actually makes history even more bewildering than it already is. Yeah. So it's not just about every period you can imagine and every country you can imagine. It's actually about every subject you can imagine as well. So I think we feel a little responsible by having exploded this idea of history to
1: help you guys focus. So I think what we're going to do is give some sort of useful little tips, but also some anecdotes about how we work. And I think one of the things that might be really interesting to connect the two up is when we pick a topic for unexpected, how do we pick those topics? And how do we then go out about researching them so once we decided we're going to do the
0: lean or the dust or shadows um, how do we actually go about researching it well um, i'm lucky because i've got a couple of great libraries nearby and there are sort of entire sections of libraries which you become particularly familiar with um as there's a section here on the cultural history of animals which i've become increasingly familiar with Mm. because we've done cats We've thought about doing sharks, and yep. we've done lions as yep. well. Yep. And I am a great fan of browsing. Yes, Now, um, browsing online is okay. You need to be very careful with you browsing do. online. You can use Google Books and you can use Google Scholar. We both have access to enormous online databases of academic articles. Through universities. Yeah, which you can browse through for a subject and keywords, yep. can't you? So if you want to browse... Cats, you know, to, if, if you don't just browse cats, you can browse cultural history of cats, yeah, or you yeah. can browse. You go, oh, I bet cats were interesting in France in the 1700s. So you can, yeah. you know, you can browse. The keywords would be cats and Renaissance yeah. or cultural history or yeah. or whatever.
1: But physical browsing on shelves in a really good it's library really, yes. is fantastic. The first thing I do is sit down with a cup of coffee and a increasingly blank my, piece of paper. A blank piece of paper, but increasingly my phone. Okay. Um, and I use the note function, and I sit down and I try to do a, a taxonomy of a topic. So it's basically how you you put together a sort of systematic outline of every aspect of a topic. Yeah. So if, for example, you're doing the history of books, the chronology of books, the uses of books, the printing of books, the buying of books, the you know all those kinds of things, ownership, and, display, and I, ownership display, destruction, and I try whatever. and do that with every single topic yep. that we do and run off in particular. So that gives you a directions. foundation. It gives me a foundation and then I will go to online bibliographies. The Royal Historical Society annual bibliography is great, so I will look up keywords there. I will also dredge back through my knowledge that I have, you know, I've spent, you know, most of my life being a historian. Yeah. That doesn't really help people who are, who are trying no, to get No 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 no. <laughs> no. List. But people are aware of of you know, the world out there. Actually, it does help people
0: because yeah. um, the one thing that you need as a historian, I think people have a real sense of historians working on their own all the time, yeah. but that's nonsense. The one thing you need as a historian is a circle of knowledgeable and interested people. They don't all have yeah. to be professional historians. You can find them in local history clubs. You can find them in libraries often. Often people who work in libraries are very, very knowledgeable also museums, you can get access to people with knowledge who are willing to spend time and share that time with you, particularly online, whether it's... Uh, I hear there are
1: also some very good documentaries on television. <laughs> <that> <laughs> yes, that that and 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 also some incredibly good um, history books uh, written by various people. So, so the first thing to do
0: is once you've decided on your topic, we're going to get back to how you decide okay. your topic, you get a foundation, get a blank piece of paper, and you say, right, I'm going to write down everything I can think of off the top of my head about tanks or um, bow ties, I would like to know these things. Or I think this thing is interesting. Why do people take bow ties? I've literally just thought of this. Why do people wear bow ties? When did they wear bow ties? Where did bow ties originate from? What were bow ties made out of? Why did some people wear bow ties and not others? When did that change? How did that change? Were reactions to bow ties? Who collected bow ties? Who designed bow ties? And then to sit down, cup of coffee and think it's a very creative discipline, history, yes. and that's yes. how you start. You yes. think, you think, you think, you think. Yeah. And ask yourself, this is the beauty of it, you don't need the answers. All you need is an inquiring mind. What would I like to know about this
1: thing? Yeah, And that is a do a mind map explosion on a piece exactly. of paper. And I think if we're taking it back a stage earlier than that, you're interested in history generally, but you're trying to come up with a topic You know, you need to be interested in something. And I think that kind of inquiring mind aspect that you're talking about is really useful. You know, it can be something that's local or national or international. It can be something that's connected to your family. It can be something that's a hobby, if, for example, your hobby is collecting bow ties. But you need something that inspires you. Yeah. And this comes back to this problem of teaching
0: history that I mentioned before. We were talking about. Schools. And yes. I, I think that the fact you can't really choose yeah. in terms of the curriculum is, is a massive problem for history. Yeah. You know, actually having it kind of rammed down your throat when you're not interested in the subjects is yep. awful. So yep. um by doing it the way we're suggesting guarantees that you're going to have
1: um, you'll spend a nice few hours. But it can also it. it can also be very I mean, I've talked to a lot of teachers and I've talked to a lot of students um, and it can be very daunting for a level students suddenly being forced to pick a topic that they've then got to write an extended essay on or undergraduate students who, you know, particularly in their third year and they're feeling very pressured and they hear about things about it needs to be original research, Mm. you know, whatever that means. I think they can be really put off by coming up with ideas. And I think the thing is, what you need is a topic that you are interested in. You don't want to rehash stuff that you've already done. You know, you don't necessarily want to pick a topic that, you know, like Anne Boleyn, that everyone does. You can take traditional topics that people have done, but you can read them in, in different ways. You can put a different slant on them. Yeah. You can look at new sources. I think the other thing is when you're coming up with a topic, it's fine saying you know, something like you want to do bow ties, but there are two things that you need. A, you need secondary literature. So there need to be Books and articles, there needs to be information that other people have written about it. Yep. And you need to be able to understand all that material, you need to be able to do something different from that material, so you need to argue against it, or agree with it, or take a different approach. The second thing is... The guidance here really helps, isn't it? Yes, yeah. guidance here. Yeah, talk to your teachers, talk to your supervisors. The other thing is, you need there to be primary sources. So you need there to actually be documents or things that survive from the past that talk about that particular topic. Yeah. So if you're talking about bow ties, back to that example, you either need there to be examples of bow ties, like in the Victorian Albert Museum, which I'm sure has a wonderful... Or the Museum of London, both of which have amazing textile and fashion collections... Or you need people to have written about bow ties. So you need the diary of a bow tie maker. Or something like that. Or you need the design behind making a bow tie or the accounts about the cost of making a bow tie. Or you need to look at it from the perspective of a shop keeper who sells bow ties. So let's
0: take this bow tie example.
1: We've we've already, we've said the beginning of a mind map of what
0: we might like to know. So the next thing we would now do is I would go online. I would find out if the Victorian Albert Museum has a collection of, has a collection of bow ties or the museum of London. If they didn't, I'd get in touch with the curator and say, all right, who does? Yeah. Then I would find out where the collection is and I would talk to people who curate that collection. I would also type in the history of bow ties into Google. I would type in history of bow ties into probably an academic database. If you can't
1: afford to get access to it yourself, go to your local library because they probably do. They probably will have it. So what what we're doing there, having decided on your topic, you then find the primary materials, and and it may not be bow ties. It may be that what you need is you're studying I don't know Henry VIII, and what you need there is a sort of series of um, of primary sources and also secondary books written about it. Those are your raw materials yeah. for doing your project. Now the next thing if you do what sam said and you go and you find like you know thousands of bow ties and loads of things written about fashion and and through all sorts of periods um it may be that you are overwhelmed by that so any topic that you do needs to be manageable you need to think about it in ways that are actually going to be Achievable. So, for example, if you were interested in Henry VIII, you couldn't do something simply on the entirety of Henry VIII. Letters and papers of Henry VIII run to multiple, multiple, multiple volumes. You're looking at something like, I don't know, seven meters of books of primary sources on Henry VIII. You simply, uh, that would take a lifetime to do that. You know, David Starkey, one of the sort of great Henry the Eighth scholars, has spent an entire lifetime, you know, working through that material. So what you need to do is you need to divide it up into digestible chunks and it may be that what you want to do is Henry VIII and a particular wife or Henry VIII and his relationship with Edward VI or Henry VIII and the navy or find a particular the Scots aspect or the French do, or the Scots castles or the fr- exactly or, yeah. exactly i mean you did something on his armor recently didn't you yeah. for for mass history masterclass yeah
0: and even that you can break that down to uh, his armor for his horses or or yeah. his foot armor or his riding armor or his armor that was made in Greenwich or the armor that was gifted to him yeah. Or or whatever, you know, you can.
1: Yeah. So, having divided it up into those sort of bite sized chunks that is manageable, you then need to read through your secondary material. You need to work out what people have said about it. Um, You then need to go to your primary sources, your documents, whatever. You need to make sure that not only that they exist, but that you are able to get access to them. And then when you actually access them, that you have the skills to be able to read them. We'll do something on primary sources in in future weeks. But basically, what you don't want to do is turn up at the National Archives and say, right, I want to read, you know, such and such about Henry VIII. And find out, A, it's been written in Latin, (laughs) or B, it's in a hand that you simply can't read. Yeah, a language you yeah, can't read. a particular type of handwriting that you can't read. Yeah. Then, if you're interested in that, you either go back to printed sources, so historians who have basically edited collections of documents, you can are use those. Amounts of that. And, all, and
0: also, it's like working with translated documents. That's,
1: exactly. That's fine. Yes. There's loads yes. of translated stuff,
0: there's loads yes. of printed stuff. Um, if, you, if you can't speak Dutch, in the 17th century and you can't read the
1: handwriting, don't beat yourself up about it. There is all sorts of... uh, There are ways around it. it. And in later weeks, we will talk to you in great detail about how to access these kinds of printed collections. There are brilliant, brilliant guides out there that will basically just, you know, send you to the right place. So I think part of that is if you are really, really interested or if you are a student who, who wants to go on and do further study, like an MA or a PhD you know then you need to start thinking about gaining those language skills and gaining those sort of paleography skills so how to read something paleography is the study of ancient handwriting let's just quickly say what primary and secondary sources are
0: as well because we've rather okay. seen people know what the difference is so are.
1: secondary sources are basically the books and articles that have been produced by historians on historical topics the difference between primary sources is primary sources are the raw materials that historians read, along with other secondary sources, books and articles, that go into the writing of history. Right, so so, here we are. Here's an
0: example. This is my book, The Fighting Temeraire, which is about the ship in Turner's famous painting. And this book itself is a secondary source because it was written by me, I am a historian, and I've used other historical work. Some of the things it was based on is um, that. There's a a nice little scribble. Oh, look at that. What's that? It says Maud in Torbay. That's a scan of one of the logbooks of HMS Temeraire, which exists at the National Archives. So the logbooks of the Temeraire are the primary source material, the letters from the captains are the primary source material, the letters of the wives to the officers, officers to the wives... Officers of
1: the Navy, sailors to the Navy, blah, 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 blah. Documentary sources that are produced at the time that you are writing about. Yes, and uh, also not just documents. No, no, no. Not just documents, but also artefacts and clothing and objects and paintings and film and documentaries. All sorts of of evidence like that. That's the the primary difference. And I I, I get a, a sense that when people say they want
0: to do history, what they mean is they want to get their hands on some primary sources yep. and to start getting access to it and thinking about it themselves. Yep. But the, to, before you do that you do need to read some secondary sources yes. to get an, a sense yes. of the context of what's going on and, yep. and just you know what's happening. Yep. So if you're interested in HMS Temeraire or HMS Victory the easiest thing to do is uh read your book and look at the sources. <laughs> look at the sources. But well, that's a great example. You don't you don't necessarily need to do a project. I know we're giving some examples of people doing a historical yes. project. But for the majority of the public, who don't have to do a project, yeah. not interested, you can say, right, I'm just interested in HMS Temeraire or Turner, yeah, and then go to the National Archives, yes, or the British Museum yeah. and see Turner's original sketchbooks from yeah. the period, yeah. or you can go and
1: read the logbooks, yes. and you know, and that that's great. That's you doing history, doing history in your local area as well, yeah you know, researching your local parish or your local town. Local doing record offices. Local record brilliant. offices are brilliant. And they're so opening and friendly. Open- they will be yeah. so happy to see you as well. And they are wonderful, wonderful people who will bend over backwards to help you with whatever you want to do. Um, or doing your family history as well. Yeah. A lot of people are very, very interested in in genealogy and getting to know how to work around those and use those genealogical records. And I think in future weeks we should also do something on genealogy.
0: Yeah, but there are also professional genealogists out there. So if you're interested in family history, this is interesting me, I'm not interested in genealogy. I'm interested in my family tree. Yes. I'm not interested in the kind of detective business of finding out about my family tree. So if I did that, I would pay someone to uh, knock up a family tree for me. Yeah. Um, in fact, you'd probably find people who volunteered to help you out. Yeah, um, and, and then once you've got your family tree going back a few generations, you can say, all right, I'm interested in Uncle Beryl, who lived in Cardiff in 1864. Yeah, And then you can go, right, I've got a starting point. I know her name. I know where she was. I am now going to go to the Cardiff records office and find out about yeah. what was going on in Newport yeah. in 1864. Yeah.
1: How do you, just going in a in a slightly different direction, how do you come up with ideas for your books? How do you decide what to write? Um, is that a difficult process?
0: Is it driven by publishers? No, no, no but it's not, it, it is, there is not a single answer to that. I don't even know how many I've written out 10. Yeah. It's more than nine, maybe 12. Every one is different. So some I've been approached by publishers saying, would you like to write a book on this? And I say, like, yeah, that's great. I'll do it, of um Others, I've said, right, there's a big gap in history here and I want to yeah. fill it, and yeah. um, which is what I did for my book on the naval history of the American Revolution, because um, that's called The Struggle for power. And no one had written a comprehensive naval history of the American Revolution, but the reason that we lost America in the 1780s was because of our navy. Yeah. It was a pretty obvious uh, obvious thing to do. Otherwise, I mean, The Fighting Temeraire, that was my first, first real kind of book for a mass market. And um, I wrote that because there was a vote on radio four i was just driving to pick up the kids or something i don't know what i was doing Hmm. and there was a vote on radio four for the nation's favorite painting and it was won by turner's painting the fighting temeraire and i was also thinking about the cover right it's quite easy to then say to a publisher my idea is you put the most famous painting in british history on the cover of a book yeah and they write about it so that just came to me in the um in the car but then you see that was the biography of a ship Yes. Right, And I suddenly thought, oh, well, we can turn that into a trilogy. I can do the biography of a man, yeah. and I can do the biography of a battle
1: yeah,
0: and put them all together, which is what I did, and it became the Hearts of Oak trilogy. And the man was Admiral Benbow. There's a pub called the Admiral Benbow in Treasure Island, which I read when I was a child, as so many of you did, and it's where Jim Hawkins meets Black Dog and Blind Pew and Long John Silver and all mm-hmm. sorts. Um, and it's a kind of name that reeked of maritime history. But no one, yeah. no one had written a decent biography of Admiral Benbow, who's a fascinating yeah. bloke, yeah. a nutter. Uh, and then I wanted to do a battle, and so I. There was, that was quite obvious to me because I did my PhD in 18th century naval history, on naval warfare particularly, and I knew that a battle called the Glorious First of June fought at the height of the Reign of Terror in the first kind of blossoming of the French Revolution was known at the time as the hardest-fought battle of the Age of Sail, more so than Trafalgar, more so than the Battle of the Nile, uh, but it had been forgotten. Hmm.
1: When I think about topics to do, I think I work in a slightly different way uh, and that's partly because it, as an academic historian, you need to, you know, rather like your book on the um, American Revolution, you're trying to fit into a sort of historical landscape that's already there. So in terms of what other historians have done. But one of the things that I'm really inspired by is just archival research and just casting around. I liked you what you said earlier on about browsing, you know, browsing through the bookshelves. And I like doing that with... Historical documents, and there 's a really famous historian called g r elton jeffrey elton who 's one of the one of the grandfathers of Tudor history he 's one of the sort of great men he 's actually ben elton 's uncle, hmm. and those of you who know Ben Elton from Blackadder um, Ben Elton has a very famous historical uh, famous in historical terms uncle. Um, and he wrote a sort of not only wrote Tudor history but you know U- European history and also a lot of books on how to study history, how to write history. And one of the things that he recommends is this is what he describes as his thesis-free empirical approach. You don't go out seeking to write something with an idea set in your mind about what your main argument is going to be. Yeah. What you do instead is you go to the archives. And you have a look through them, you read them, you immerse yourself in them. And from that process comes a, a an idea for an article for a book. And I've, I'm working on a book at the moment on called The Family and Materials of Memory. And this is looking at the period 1500 to 1800. And it's looking at how family history has been recorded over that period. And I came up with this idea because one summer I spent months just sitting in the reading rooms, in the manuscript room at the British Library and the Bodleian Library in Oxford, their new wonderful manuscript room, just calling up everything, you know, just random stuff, whether I was interested in it or not, but anything that seemed to be connected with that. And I was pulling up family Bibles and account books and, you know, little treatises and memorials and poetry and all sorts of things and and even memory boxes. And from that process, and scraps of hair from that process came this idea for a, a book
0: yeah. I mean, some things are helpful, some things are inspirational, some things are completely useless, aren't they? Yes. I think we should leave it there. I think um, we should. I think that's a good opening gambit for how to choose a historical topic. We'll yes. definitely come back to it. Um, and do please get in touch with us and let us know how you're getting on. And if you need any help, we're here to help. And also, before we
1: go, one of the important things is have fun. Yes. You know, this is something you choose to do. You're going to spend a lot of time doing it. It will be something that is a passion for you. So make sure you enjoy it. I would like to make everyone do it, though. I would like to make everyone have
0: fun doing it if you like what you hear please leave us a review on iTunes it's really important it really helps subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends we're on Twitter you can follow me at Dr Sam Willis and you can
1: follow me at James Daybell and you can follow us at Unexpected Pod. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other fantastic shows that you should check out.
0: If you want to find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Go and have a look at it. Thank you. Bye. And have fun. Bye. (laughs) If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at the TheHistoryMC.